This recording is brought to you by the Goodness and Kindness Foundation. If you're walking down the street, smile to a stranger, do a good thing for someone else, let's all strive to make our impact in this world order to make the world a better dwelling place for everyone. One small candle can light up a very dark room. So spread as much positivity and kindness with everyone and your surroundings so that way we can make the world a better and happier and healthier place. Hey everyone, I'm super, super excited to have with us a very, very special guest on Founder Stories. Today we have the absolute honor to host our dear friend Amit. Amit is the general partner of a credible fund of funds called Sweetwood Ventures. And he's going to get into all about Sweetwood, the founding story, what they do now, what they look for, and everything around there. But besides that, Amit was in another life, potentially could have been a professional baseball player. And uh, he could have played for the New York Mets, his favorite team, and we'll get into the whole entire aspect over there, but he decided to go down a different career path. But Amit is also somebody that constantly works on himself to become the best version of himself possible. So I'm very excited to learn about his values, his principles, and what makes him the best version of Amit every single day. So Amit, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Prime, for having me. It's great to uh, have this little conversation and talk exactly about all these things you mentioned. I have a, a lot of stuff to cover. You're welcome. I mean, every time so far we've spoken, the conversation has jumped so many different types of locations, and it's been always a very insightful and meaningful. But I want to start off, we'll deep dive right away. I want to know what are your values, the one that you truly hold, um, that are written down on a paper somewhere, or you have them on your mirror or something like that? And how do those values that you believe are your values play out in your day-to-day interactions, personal interactions, and specifically in your business interactions? I think there's a few things. I think if you go back and you mention it, I kind of grew up in a bit of an athletic background. I don't think I ever had a chance to make it to the Mets, but but I was a decent ball player back in the day. I think one of the things that was really instilled in me from a very young age was hard work. So the first thing is, kind of like in baseball, we always used to say, like, there's a lot of things you can't control. And really the one thing that you can't control is yourself. The weather might be bad. The umpires might be horrible. You did a gazillion stuff that didn't go right. And then day, it's just about putting your head down, out preparing, working harder than others are kind of the key things that will make you succeed. And so that was something that was really instilled in me from a very young age. And as I grew up, I started looking at it in a more philosophical way, kind of like things of like, you know, chaos theories and what we can control in life, what we can't control in life. And you know, I always come back to that reality that in life, we really can't control a lot of stuff and a lot of things that are going on. Most stuff that happen in life are beyond us. And then the focus is kind of like, what can I do to make things better? What can I do personally to take, kind of shut down the noise and focus on what I can do to make things right? I think that's the first thing. And that all relates to like hard work, putting your head down and, and grinding. I think that's kind of one thing. Another thing I think is really doing good. I think that you can call them a call it karma, you can call it good business, you can call it whatever you want. There's a lot of different ways to portray it. But in the end, I really believe that doing good as a way of living and helping others succeed is something that ultimately will lead to doing a lot of good for you. Like good will come back and there's a sort of the cycle. And you don't need to be super focused kind of like on the immediate reward and the now and what am I getting today from it? Most of the times, like the reward is unseen. You don't know when you're going to get it. You might never get it. But if you kind of go through life with the understanding that if you do these things, at one point it will be beneficial, but you don't really do it as a way to benefit yourself. You just do it because it's the right thing and you want to see others succeed. I think that's that's a very smart value that, that's really helped me a lot 
later on in business. And there's numerous examples, but kind of like anytime you interact with, you know, like last week is a great example. I remember I was lying in bed late at night. I got this email from a founder that I made a bunch of introductions for that. I know one of her co-founder, I basically know her from school. We did our undergrads together. And I got the email late at night from the, the other co-founder that said, you know, so grateful. Thanks a lot for all this intros. This is amazing. And there was no immediate reward. I didn't need to do this. It just, you know, I know that if I add value to this person and then he adds value to other persons, and obviously I connected them to people that could get value from that person. I think that just trickles down and then to giving you success. And I think that if you focus on like these two things, so if you take this of like trying to do good, uh, like hard work, I think just good things will just happen as a result of these two things. So I think if I focus on like, what are the two things that I personally see are the most important things or are these two things and I'll take it as a side note, like for us at Sweetwood to connect it to what we do today, but I think we decided very early on that the best kind of business path for us is to be good, to be nice, to be kind, right? doesn't mean we're not professional. doesn't mean we can't be aggressive when, when you need to be aggressive, but you know, live in a modus operandi of we're here to do the good. We're here to be helpful. We're here to support and that will kind of trickle down to good things and not in any way damage your ability to do your job in a good way. So that's how it really relates to, to what we built at Sweetwood. And I feel that was one of like, one of the most important decisions we did early on and we've been, you know, thankfully, hopefully, and thankfully rewarded for it quite well through the years. Yeah. You know, I always say there's no commandment in the Bible that says thy shall be an asshole. Well, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't hurt to be nice. It doesn't hurt. But and it's 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 funny, but but also I think it's a bit. You know, obviously, I'm kind of like half Israeli, half American. You know, there's a few things I think that Israelis can learn from Americans. Like Israelis are very adamant about like, like saying I'm sorry or saying thank you, and those little things are not embedded in Israeli society. They are much more embedded in U.S. society. But I think that taking a bit of these makes you a bit of an outlier in Israeli society and helps you to propel you even more forward. So it's a bit of like a cheat sheet of how you take cultures. Everybody a lot of times thinks about like how Israelis take like their chutzpah and their attitude and they fly on a plane to New York and they're able to sell whatever you want. Um, but I think it could also work the other way around. And there's a lot of things that you can take from U.S. cultures, other Western cultures and make them an advantage for you in Israel. And I think kind of balancing both sides is something really cool that, that you can. Right. Totally. I mean, there's something to learn from every single individual person. But going back to your first principle, which you said, which part of it was obviously hard work and try to control the things you could control. Most times, you know, in life and in investments or in anything, we're trying to control the things that we can't control. You know, we're trying to play God. We're trying to play the director, the actor. We're trying to play the whole entire spiel, everything. How did you get to that place or what are the tools that you use personally that you worked on yourself in order to get to a place to let go? and not try to control the outcome. Just let it be. That's it. You could do your, like they call Ishtadlut, you know, your participation, but that's it. Yes. I'm not sure letting go is the right approach. Like, I think it's okay to be passionate about stuff. Like, it's okay to be frustrated, to be worried, to be anxious, to be afraid. I, th I think the question is not like saying, okay, I have all these emotions as, a, as an individual, as a human being. We all have them, right? The question is, you know, I don't think you need to kind of say like, okay, all these things are on the side and I'm ignoring it. I think the reality is much more to say, okay, I have all these turmoil of emotions. How do I work within the situation to make the decisions as best I can while understanding these emotions, right? So it's kind of like, instead of like moving them to the side, it's more like tackling them up front and saying like, I have these feelings, I have these emotions. I know they can influence my judgment. Um, are they influencing my judgment or am I thinking in a, in a clear way? And again, it, it goes back, like they like really, one of the sentences from sports is like, 
all kinds of these small tactics that you do as, as a baseball player, but like, you know, things like these mantras of like control the controllables is a mantra that will stick with me for life. Like, control the controllables. That's what we always hear. Um, you know, all kinds of, of small, like there, there's small mind games that you can play on yourself. Right. So I don't know if you ever noticed, but like, like baseball pitchers, right? I don't know if you ever noticed pitchers that kind of like they throw like three balls in a row, right? They kind of get out of the zone and then they kind of start wiping they're right in front of the, of the mouth, right in front of the, the rubber. I don't know if you probably notice people do it, but the reason a lot of pitchers do it is because mentally you're kind of cleaning the slate. It has a strong mental impact. So it's, it's kind of like these tricks that I learned a lot through sports or one of the things that I used to do every time I used to get defocused is, is you have like a, a centralized place on the field that gets you comfortable. So let's say you pitch, you throw three balls in a row, you have, for example, in the outfield, a specific sign that you look at you take a deep breath, you look at, and that's kind of back to your comfort zone. And I used to have a friend who always used to yell to me 365 because we had a sign at like right center. He used to say 365. Whenever I used to get out of the zone, he yelled to me 365 because he knew that was my kind of signal to kind of relax. So I think these are small like mental exercises that you can do in your day-to-day life that have nothing to do with sports, right? So finding places that give you comfort, uh, stepping out of the zone to relax and rethink things before you come back to approach them. I think those are the tools. And for me, really, like sports has been a huge support in the things and how I approach things in life. That's why I, I try to just take a lot of these. tools. I don't even try it. I just kind of like naturally. And that's kind of how I was grown up. Yeah, that's one of the most amazing things about the sports. And I think there's so many more parables and examples that you could probably learn from sports that apply to business. I'm sure you have plenty more, which you will hear about. Um, but I think one of the most amazing things is what I truly admire about sport players is their discipline is their commitment day in, day out, no matter what. Um, like you said before, you have to be committed and there's no other way about it. And I always think about this, and I wanna hear your thoughts, is that a sport player, for example, is gonna train the whole entire day. The whole commitment is to becoming a better sport player. But how do we apply that into business? Like if someone that says a venture guy, if you see, or a startup, that training that a player does from morning to night there's got to be some type of thing in the same way in the business world sense from a venture person or a founder too, or any other position. Yeah, I think it's a bit of different things, right? Because I think there are obviously a lot of comparables between sports and business. But I think in sports, one of the goals is kind of to have a very repetitive motion or sense of thing that you do over and over again. It's very similar. And understanding how you repeat certain principles within an environment that's changing. I think that's that's kind of the idea with business. And then it's just repeating things, but understanding that sometimes things change, right? So again, sorry for all the, the baseball comparisons, but like you stand up there and there's a guy throwing 97 or a guy throwing 86, like you need to adjust, right? He's throwing a fastball, he's throwing a curveball. You need to adjust. So it's kind of like taking the same principles throughout business, but just like, exercising them by repeating them in different business environments and understanding how to adopt to different things. So again, I'm going back to these comparisons because for me, it's just about like business and sports. It's all about training yourself and the way you train yourself in business and just by seeing a lot of things, it's just similar to baseball. Like you just see a lot of pitchers after a while, you recognize it better. You understand better. You react better. You adjust quicker. Right. And a lot of times, you know, I'm younger of age, but I have a lot of respect to, to gray hair. Seeing a lot of stuff makes you smarter in our business. Um, and it gives you other edges that some people don't have. And that's why a lot of times I, I like to get a lot of advice from people around me. My, my partner is a bit older, some of our advisory board members, because they have a bit of gray hair and they see things. And, and then, you know, maybe you have other attributes as a, as a younger person because you see things differently, but they've seen things in a repetitive way and there's a lot of knowledge there. And then the question is, how do you adapt? And again, another baseball comparison, but I'll stop here is like, 
These are like your coaches, right? They've seen it. They understand how to adapt to the situation. They've been there. And you can learn a lot by interacting with those folks. I'm assuming, you know, people are wondering, like, what is your fascination with baseball? Like, where did that come from? What is it? <laughs> so it's, it's 100% my dad. Quick background. So my dad's American. My mom's Israeli. My dad grew up a huge Mets fan. And pretty much I was bound to be a big baseball fan and a big Mets fan. He pushed me to start playing baseball here in Israel when I was seven. Basically from the age of seven to 25, I played on the Israel national team. Was fortunate to play with, with awesome guys that actually some of them have made it to the big leagues. And big shout out to those guys. Um, and yeah, I'm coached for many, many years, which also taught me a lot about a lot of things. Like coaching is also a, an experience I was very grateful to get at a very young age. I mean, I started coaching at 18 and I, I coached until I was like about 30 or so. I was still coaching national teams and, and those are also wonderful experiences that, that really, I think, teach you a lot. Did you ever want to become a professional player? Um, not sure. I played a bit professionally. Like we had a professional league one year in Israel. I don't think that my passion, as much as I love baseball and, and something I, I cherish, I wasn't as convinced that this was my long life goal. I'm also not sure that I was good enough to, to be, so maybe it's a combination of both. Um, but, but yeah, I have other friends that were, were super talented. There, there's a guy I mentioned to you before one of our conversations, there's a guy called, uh, Alon Leishman. We grew up playing baseball since we were 11. For him, baseball was life, right? And even when he got injured back in college, you know, he just went into coaching and six months ago, he was appointed as the assistant pitching coach of, of Cincinnati Reds. And he was really geared for that. And I'm, I'm not sure I was there mentally as he was passionate about it, which is, which is fine. I think what's really cool is that we sat together about four or five months ago when he was in Israel and we were talking about a job, you know, high worship pitchers and data and looking at data and understanding how the ball moves and then you need to give an adjustment. And it's amazing because you, you look at that and you're looking at like the world of VC and you're like, wait a second, like I'm looking at data. I'm giving people tips or, or advice for whether it's good or bad. That's another question, but I'm giving them tips and advice of how, what to do. And it was, it was really shocking that our jobs are not that different, right? <laughs> like we both look at data and then we need to take this data and in, interpret it to the people we work with and get them to do things with that. So get them to do, to move into action. Um, so it was quite cool to see that in the end, a lot of these jobs kind of are very similar in the core of what they do, although they're from completely different worlds. One thing I always wanted to understand, and you know, you being surrounded or having been surrounded by professional athletes is how do they develop their mindset? We're talking about it before, because that's something that, you know, you, let's say for example, you're standing in a crowd, pitching in Met stadium, let's say 46,000 seats, I think something like that. You have this roaring, roaring noise, you know, and if you're messing up, everyone's screaming at you and, you know, yelling at you and it, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's distractions. You like that. How do you just stay in your lane and stay focused? Or if you're yeah. going through a slump, right? Then like, you know, the whole entire media is writing up about you, you know, get rid of him, trade him, or just a general day-to-day interaction. How do you just stay focused, committed and disciplined to a goal? Or even like a college student that looking to become professional, how do you develop mm -hmm. your mindset? So, so I'll start by saying like, these people are, are super special. These are very special people. I think sometimes, you know, a lot of people that are fans have not kind of understood the paths of the game. I think what was incredible for me is that, that you know, I play at a decent level, not a super high level, but let's say like high college and a bit of professional level. And what was amazing was to always understand that there's people that are so much better at this game. It's like always like, like we're not playing the same game, right? And sometimes you see it on TV and, and you don't understand that these guys in the major leagues, they're special, unique individuals, both from an athletic perspective, but also from a mental perspective. Um, these are very, very special people that, and, and some of them are like, it, it's almost unexplainable sometimes. It's not only the training, it's kind of like a mental and, and it relates a lot to like how you were born, how you were raised, what were your experiences? 
I assume part of it also relates to genes and what are the experiences, where you came from, the backgrounds and everything. And it's incredible. Like I, I remember something that struck me like amazingly. So Danny Valencia, I don't know if you know the guy, Danny Valencia is one of the kind of the best, say one of the top 30 Jews to ever play baseball. He played for like, I think over a decade in the big leagues, phenomenal guy, phenomenal player. And, and, um, Danny played for the Israel national team. I, I wasn't playing anymore. This is about four years ago. And he was taking batting practice. We were at the European championship in Germany in Regensburg. And the guy was taking batting practice and he was joking with somebody, one of, of the like professional folks on the team that he was telling him, you're hitting too many home runs, Danny. Like we can't afford all these lost baseballs. This is real baseball. And so Danny just goes out and he says, uh, you know what? Here you go. So he just went out to hit five more home runs in a row in DP. It's almost like has this like extra gear. It's almost like unhumanly. Like most athletes, like they would beg to be like 50% of that. And you see it, and it's just special individuals that kind of have this extra magnitude of gear, a special ability to focus at a hyper level and execute intense moments. And I think Danny Valencia is probably one of the guys I've seen up close that, that is as good as it gets at that. You know, I seen him do that there. I seen him, you know, I wasn't there live, but looking at the Olympics, they're just special people that know how to take their focus to a different level. And you can really see it with those special people. And I think if you look at like major leaguers, that's what they are. So take their personality, their growing up story, you take all of the training that they went through and you combine that. And the reality of all of life, it's like the pyramids, right? It's, it's like, there's a lot of people at the bottom. The reality is that they're a very small group at the top that really succeeds and takes things to the next level. And sometimes it's hard to explain the attributes of, of success and why these people are so successful. Um, and, you know, God knows how many books have been written to analyze the success of these people. So to tell you exactly, you know, this is the reasons that these people drive success. I don't know. I think it's thousands of different attributes. And I just find it like really incredible to see some of these people when they turn it into gear. It's, it's like, wow, you know, this, this is amazing. So how did your path of not going down the baseball path, how did your path lead to go ahead and found you Sweetwood and becoming the fund of funds you are now? Yeah. So it really had nothing to do with it. I, I think, it, I think there was a bit of a crossroad for me, you know, in the Israeli military, you know, obviously Israelis have to go for three years. Men have to go for three years. Women have to go for two years. And I was very fortunate to get like a special status in the military that allowed me to continue playing baseball. There's about one athlete pair sport that gets that. It depends which sport, but in baseball, we get about one a year. So I continued to play baseball for, through the military service. Um, and then there was this crossroad of like, okay, do I want to continue playing college baseball? And I don't think at that point I was just like super passionate about it. I had like one or two offers, but really felt that I wanted to focus on other things in life, you know? So then just kind of got an undergrad at, at, at IDC, um, two undergrads, one in law, one in finance, explored some things in life, worked in parliament for a little bit, trying to figure out if that's what I want. I spent six months in an exchange program in, in Korea. And then I had the opportunity to work there for the Israeli ambassador in Seoul which was also a cool experience because I got to learn a bit of diplomacy and things like that. And both of these experiences kind of made me understand that this isn't the path I want to go for, which is good. Again, they taught me that world and it, it was cool to get a little glimpse into that. Um, and then I, and then I basically went into finance for a little bit, then went into law and then kind of having this fundamentals, I, I really had an opportunity. You know, I was invited to come back to a multifamily office, um, that was, was established by two of my partners and build the venture activity out of there. As the years went by, rather very quickly, we kind of spun out Sweet Adventure activity out of there. Um, and yeah, it was, again, it wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, it was a bit of a, a, a weird path, right? Cause it kind of came out of nowhere. I had an opportunity. I was fortunate people allowed me to build in, in a certain framework and I was lucky enough to do it successfully. 
but yeah, it's just a matter of opportunities. But I think if you go back, so if you actually see the LinkedIn, so, so I didn't clearly mention it, but before I went into law, I worked for that family office, right? And I think that goes back to like doing good, working hard. You know, the opportunity that I got to build that came because I stayed in touch with the partners that founded the family office. You know, obviously I did, I did pretty good work because they wanted me to come back a few years later. So that's kind of how it led me to the path. But, you know, I think the world is more complex. You can never really tell how one thing will lead to another. I, I don't believe in linear linkages, right? I think that, I think some people are humans, right? We have the capacity to always think in a linear way. Like, you know, X influences Y, you're going to do this, you're going to get that. And I think life is just, and it goes back to the complexity theories and, and chaos theories of the world. I don't think life works like that. I think that in the end, you, you, that's why you need to focus on like what you're going to do, do it right. And hope that the good opportunities will come. Sometimes it depends on luck, but if you prepare like the good base of skill, then luck is going to allow you to succeed in that environment. That's by the way, just as a side note, that's, that's what I always tell people that come to get like career advice. I say like, they're like, how do I get into venture? And I'm like, look, there's a lot of ways to get into that. Um, there's not one linear path and you just, I think in the end need to accumulate enough experiences that will make you good as an individual and a lot of skills that will supplement your future career. And then you just need to get a good opportunity on what you want to do and, and be passionate about it, work hard and, and things will work out. Yeah, totally. I mean, luck plays a huge part, but it's amazing to hear about, you know, you were able to go ahead and experience so many different things. You're able to get your exposure to working in government and policy and diplomacy, then you business, you're able to get exposure in law. Um, I'm sure there's maybe one or the other two things thrown in the mix over there, but you're able to get, you know, multiple experiences and which essentially like to help you come to understand what is it that you like to do and what is it that you like to do where do you mm -hmm. like to play your focus which i think is such a crucial thing when you know especially when younger people are starting a career try to get as many experiences as possible that way when you want to make your final decision like okay what do i want to focus um that's what you do but i love the other thing you said yeah. was essentially if you boil it down it's like open yourself up to opportunities be open to that sure. no and, and i think i think so, so just on your first comment i think you know Part of it is being a bit ADHD and, and, you know, if you look at my life growing up, my mother will tell you, I probably jumped from a gazillion different things to a gazillion age. So one day it was, it was this sport and the next day it was that sport and the next day it was, it was magic or whatever I wanted to get into for that specific period of time. And, and some of it is really embedded in my character that I like to experience different things. And then it wasn't that crazy that when, when I grew up, I would want to get experiences with different things, just like as a kid, like I remember myself really literally jumping from sport to sport and doing different things. But I agree. I think, I think that, and I think that, by the way, I think the key thing is not like focusing on like a specific industry or a specific vertical or a specific profession, right? I think it's, it's much more critical at a young age to understand what are the type of environments you want to work in? Like, what are the things that are, you're good at, you know, are you good in, in, and let's say focusing and solving complex problems that don't require a lot of, of human interface, right? probably programming or things like that are much more interesting for you. Are you enjoying, you know, communicating with people? Do you enjoy convincing people to do things? Do you enjoy speaking to people? Do you want to work in a big team, in a small team? Do you want to manage? I think these are the things that young professionals should, should kind of try to focus on as they go through their career. And then, and then, and then you're right. I think, you know, always staying open to opportunities, always trying to explore and you need to differentiate, right? Like even if you're looking at new opportunities and, and looking at what's out there, it doesn't mean you're not super focused on what you're doing. I think part of being a smart human being is understanding the environment, understanding what's developing, understanding everything that's going on. So being super focused, super committed to what you're doing and where you are today. Um, and, you know, 
if you're open-minded, like opportunities will be there and you'll be able to also take them uh, when, they, when you come. But if you're kind of closed-minded about these opportunities, you're not speaking to people, you're not engaged in conversations, you're not opening up your mind, I think it will be very difficult to seize these opportunities right. when they come. Yeah. How do you stay so committed and disciplined? Um, you're, thank God, very, very young, but you have the wisdom beyond your years. Sometimes. Um, uh, you know, like any person, I also do stupid things from time to time, but try to try to reduce the mistakes and, and increase the successes, I think, is the goal in life. But no, I, I, I don't know. The, the, the reality is I don't have a good answer. I, I, I have this drive. I have this passion. You know, I feel committed to people, to environments around me. I think one of the things that was very crucial to me is having support around me, having people that are very different to me in terms of their structures and the way they think. And when you work with people like that, it kind of drives you every day to you know, work with them, stay in the flow with them. And I think I've been very fortunate to work with people like that and find, find and, and build around me a group of like that of people. So I think I really what drives me for motivation is, is really the people around me. Like having a good group of people that want to wake up every day and succeed. And it's almost like you, you can't fail them, right? You have this responsibility to wake up and do good. And, and it's not only the people I work with on a day to day, it's like all these stakeholders around you that are reliant on you or more than that, gave you a lot of trust and confidence and supported you when you wanted to start something and, and you want to reward them for that. And it's a very strong commitment. It's, it's something that's kind of like you don't speak about, you, you just know, you know that you wake up in the morning and, and this is the first thing you're going to think about. And this, there's going to be an email or phone call at 11 p.m., 12 a.m., you're just going to get on that because this is what you're supposed to do and you've been trusted and there's people counting on you to do it and do it right. So I think those are the things that really drive me, but, but there are things that are hard to really tell. It's just like this huge power that just happens and you, you just go out and you just do it. And, and I can't explain it. I get it. I get it. Sometimes there's just no words for it, but that innate thing that constantly drives you. But if that, having that, you know, what finally gave you the confidence to go ahead and launch Sweetwood? It's a good question. <laughs> I think I think I think confidence is built over time. I think again, having the right people working with you, having a deep understanding that you can do good at, at what you plan on doing, um, and having people believe in that that you can do it. So when all these like magical things come together, when you are very focused and you're very confident in your ability to do something and build value for others, and you know you go and you speak to these other people, and they're convinced that you could do it for them. And then it's just like this flywheel that goes into motion. But like, if you get these first steps and, and it might be long, like, you know, for, for us, it took you know, over a year to get our first fund off the ground. But today, obviously, you know, five, six years later, you know, we, we managed $250 million. Um, it looks great. But there were parts where like that grind was very hard. But I think it's just like having this very strong conviction that, A, you will succeed. So it's just a matter of time, right? And again, in order to get to that success, having very strong belief that what you're doing is right and having an infrastructure, I think, of people around you that believe in that goal to get a review. I think for myself, it would have been very hard to the verge of impossible to start something like this without people around me, uh, without partners around me that were supportive of this. And I think that's important. I think, but I think that that is something that's very individual, right? I think some people can do things on their own. For me, like that environment pushes me further. And like I said before, Right? That means I need to wake up every day because I made a commitment to people. I told people I will do certain things in a certain way and I will drive success in a certain way. And that's a very strong commitment for me. You mentioned uh, raising your first fund, which was $70 million. Um, What were some of the challenges mm -hmm. you had back then? You said it was very, very difficult. I think, I think it's, it's very similar to any fundraising, right? So if you look at like global data, 
average time the first fund is 12 to 16 months, right? It's very hard to raise a venture capital fund. And when you look at a, at a venture capital fund or any fund, for that say, you know, you are essentially the problem, right? You're coming with a strategy, a vision, a thought, an idea, and you're selling your ability to execute on it, right? So it's very similar in some ways to like an early stage startup. And there's a lot of challenges and a lot of difficulties. One of the things that I, I still struggle to understand is really the kind of um, the different intricacies of what impacts finance, like fundraising, right? I see a lot of people that I think will be super successful and they're not. And I see other people that I think will not be successful and they are successful. So I think, and again, it, it all relates in the end to human beings, right? There's human beings, there's networks, you, some people are better at it, some people are worse at it. And then the struggles are just, are just like the, the simple struggles that you start off, you don't have a very wide network, right? Obviously being an incumbent, it's easier to raise because you know a lot more people. So you have access to bigger pools of capital. You've built a reputation over time. You know, these people intimately, people connect you to other people. And, and those things take time to, to grow and mature and scale. Um, so that's, that's why it's very difficult for most, most investors to kind of raise their first fund. It just does they don't have the experience. It takes time also to train that specific muscle. Today, it's much easier to recognize in a conversation, what is the intent of a specific investor you're trying to raise capital from? When I started, it was much more difficult, right? Today, you, you kind of have this, this muscle that says, okay, this is a conversation that's going to go somewhere or it's not a conversation that will go somewhere. And that means that, that you know, young investors that are only starting to fundraise capital for themselves don't have that muscle. And I didn't have that muscle, right? And that means that a lot of times you're going to spend time on conversations that are less meaningful, um, spend time and resources on these conversations, which means that your feedback loops are going to be much longer and they're going to be less precise. And if you think of all these, these themes that I'm kind of outlining, like these are the same struggles that entrepreneurs go through in a startup or so you're trying to fundraise for a startup or you're trying to get product market fit. Right? Why are second time entrepreneurs a lot of times much more successful? It's because they understand how to shorten these iterations. They understand how to get quickly to market, ask the right questions, get the right knowledge, um, and come back, iterate on their product and make it better and better and better. Um, and I think that's the biggest difficulty when, when you look into like first time investors or first time entrepreneurs that are building frames for the first time is they, they still don't have that muscle that's embedded of like, you know, get that iteration, get it quickly, change, 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 and get to these people around you like very quickly to expand that network. So yeah, I don't, I don't think we were unique in our challenges that we had. Um, I just think that it's obviously a challenge that takes time to get over and, and just like, again, it's, it's hard work. And if you do good and then you grind, like things, things, things will work and long. But then how do you measure that? We just mentioned, um, with the funds that come to you for the BNLP, and they're specifically also, I guess, the emerging managers, which you have a new fund for. Um, how are you measuring that these people potentially have, I guess there's three things you're looking for. One is the sourcing network, and two, they're able to pick the winners, and you know, I guess three, get into the winners. What are you looking for essentially in the, in the manager? Yeah, so I think what you said is very right. Um, when we look at emerging managers, Right. And emerging managers, I'll define these as managers that are in vintage one to three. You are basically looking at managers that have a very limited track record. Obviously, I'm not talking about like a group that spun off or a group that had a prior track record. And it is very hard to assess. The first thing that you need to understand about venture capital, that there's two major hurdles to understand if somebody is a good venture investor. Right. The first thing is you need a lot of money. Okay. As opposed to public markets, I can give you $10,000. Here, I need to give you $10 million in order to know if you're worth anything. The second thing is the time around, right? Um, if I give you $10,000 in three months, I can get a pretty good idea if you're a good public market investor or not. 
in venture, I need to give you $10 million in seven, eight years. So the feedback loops in venture and our ability to assess, assess emerging managers are quite difficult because if you think about it, if you start your fund one at time zero, right, you're going to raise your fund three at essentially six years. So when you start raising your fund three, and that's why, by the way, fund three is the hardest fund to raise. So if you look at the data, right? So it's very hard to understand what's the data of people that have tried to raise their first fund because, you know, you don't have data on people that haven't succeeded in raising your third fund. But only 26% or so of funds in the U.S., and the data is very similar in Israel, raise more than three vintages, which is astonishing if you think about it. That basically says that 75% or so, almost 80%, and depends on the years and everything, almost 80% of people that build a venture firm are not able to build a longstanding business like they want to. They're essentially out of business within six or seven years while they're looking to build a business for two or three decades, right? And that reason is why like that third vintage is the vintage that's hardest to raise because now I can know what is your performance on your first vintage. So imagine when, when, when we come as, as investors and we kind of want to underwrite the risk on the first vintage, it's very difficult to assess these things. You know, obviously the, the best thing we, we look at is track record. If you're an emerging manager and, and you don't have track record, you know, for us as a group, and obviously different groups work differently, but for us as a group to come in and say, we understand enough about you that we will underwrite the risk as something that's, that's impossible for us, right? So we need some sort of a track record, some sort of proof that you are a good investor. And that could come in, in different ways and different varieties. Now, if we have that, we, we may be able to invest in your first vintage. Now, trying to understand these qualities that we mentioned, right? Rigor, understanding, brightness, network, sourcing. These are things that are very intangible. So the way we work through our due diligence process is we kind of try to break it into two sides, right? So we have things that are very quantifiable, right? These are data-driven things and data-driven insights that we can get. So for example, we can benchmark your tracker. We can get all of your deal flow log and say whether you're seeing 80, 60, 70, or 90% of the deal flow in Israel. Um, we can look at the companies that you invested in and drill down into the companies. And even if they haven't exited yet, we can understand their success, certain parameters. And we're very big on that data set. So when we started Sweetwood, we said that they want that we want to collect a lot of data so we can later look at this data and kind of understand venture dynamics, understand things better. We use different kinds of software in order to analyze all that data. So that's kind of side one of what we do. Then there's, there's all these qualitative things, which are just as important. And on the qualitative side, I think for me, the biggest key is just like spending a lot of time with people. Obviously, and that goes back to being of the conversation, what does that do to your biases? You need to be aware that the more time you spend with people, obviously you will like people that are similar to you. All of these biases that naturally exist in human to human interactions. Um, you need to try and put them on the side and understand how they impact kind of how you work and what you do. Um, but then really for me on the qualitative side is, is speaking to a lot of people about the person, getting the impression from, from his network, from his peers, um, from founders, obviously, just the ecosystem. And I think that's where we personally have a very big advantage of being so focused on Israel. Because we always say all we do is Israel, we kind of always reference people. Our day-to-day -day job is we always speak to stakeholders in the ecosystem. We always try to understand who's doing what, how, what are the qualities, do entrepreneurs like them, do they not like them, what do they think about them, what happened in that super critical point of time, how did they react, how did they, they do something, did they decide to do something that's good for the fund, did they decide to do something that's good for the company, and there's no simple way to say like, hey, I'll put this all stuff on an Excel list and I say, hey, this, yes, or a no, right? 
Um, a lot more softer skills than that. And then it's just kind of like taking your mindset that I think more than anything is kind of discussing it internally. Like I think one of the processes that we really like to do is allow each one of us on the investment team to get his own views and not really discuss things until everybody has had the chance to interact and think about their interaction with the prospective GP and then come together as a group to discuss our thoughts and what we think about that. And then, you know, combine that kind of qualitative stuff that we learned about the GP that we think about the GP with the quantitative stuff and basically reach a result of whether this makes sense for us as an allocation or not. So it's a bit of a complex process with a lot of moving data points. And, you know, we have a list of like all the things we check. Like, I think there's like, there's like 150 or so different things we check when we do the diligence that we kind of want to think about. Um, and yeah, then like, how do we come to a specific thought? I think that's just the, the mental exercise of how do we make resolutions and decide on a specific manager whether to allocate to them or not. There's just like a lot of brain power coming together and making a decision on it. Yeah, that, it's so interesting because like usually if you're a regular manager, right? You're a GP, let's say. Okay, so you have your LP and your LP believes in you that you're able to go ahead and source the best startups. But over here, it's like, yeah, obviously your LPs, your LPs are believing in you that you're able to choose the right person that's able to go ahead and choose the right startups, you know? So it's like a double things. Exactly. And I think, again, we, we do both, right? So we also invest directly in startups and we also invest in funds and we also do secondaries into funds and as well as startups. So we kind of do the whole universe, but we're not a pure fund of funds because we really do everything across the venture, I guess, except for lending. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Main fund of fund, I think we are a tool to get diversified exposure to Israeli venture capital. I personally think that for most investors in the world, fund to fund model makes a lot of sense and I can drill into that, but you know, venture is a very interesting asset class. And I'll just say one data point on why I think fund to fund, but it's a whole broader discussion on whether investors should invest in fund or fund to fund. One of the most interesting data points on this is that, I don't know if you know this, but fund to fund on a median outperform venture capital fund on a net okay. basis. So the top quartile or decile of direct funds is better, obviously, than the top quartile decile fund of funds, which makes sense because it's an outlier business. And if you think about it, it actually makes sense that the median of fund of funds would be better at a net level. So this is after the double layer of fees, right? Would be better than direct funds. The reason being is that Fund of funds have two things that I think are critical in the world of ventures. So the first thing is access. As an individual investor, there's a lot of funds in the world and in Israel as well, where you simply don't have access. It's not a matter of check size. It's not a matter of who you are. You know, these are funds that started at a certain point in time with a close group of investors. And they usually tend to stick to these group of investors across vintages. And if you were just not there at the right point of time, if you did not add value in order to get into that fund at one point in time, which is a lot of things that we do, you're not going to get into that fund. Right. And usually, obviously, the hard to access fund are, funds are the best funds in venture. So the first thing is, is the access pillar. The second thing is the expertise pillar. We have LPs that are, that are super smart. Most of our LPs are, are smart people, sophisticated people. Some of them manage billions of dollars and, and some of them even manages over $100 billion. Right? Um, the difference is that, that we kind of live and do this every day. While they could have done our work, it's simply not their work. Right? They need to manage a, a broad portfolio of investments. They're allocating to venture anywhere between one and five, maybe if they're super aggressive, 10%. If you think about that, it makes a lot more sense for them to outsource that work to people like us that kind of live and breathe this ecosystem and understand the dynamics and interact with it every day. Um, and hopefully data has shown that have a superior ability to select those, those best funds in the market. So if you kind of think of the data um, on that research that, 
there's a big research that was done on this topic, it kind of makes sense that fund the fund would, would outperform direct venture funds. As an average, and I will say that the last thing that most investors don't understand about venture is that everybody knows that investing in a startup is, is risky. So everybody will tell you, yeah, 95% of, of, of startups fail. Now, the question is, what percentage of VCs fail? So first thing you need to do in order to understand is define failure. So we all understand that not returning your money that you put in, that is definitely failure. If you look at venture capital, about 25% of funds do exactly that. And then everybody always speaks about this, you know, elusive 3x return that you want to get from your venture fund. The reality is that 3x returns are something that only the top 10% of venture funds so if you think about it as, as an outside investor that's kind of doesn't have the expertise, wants to get into venture, you know, your ability to think, again, in my humble opinion, like to think that you're going to sit there in the U.S. or anywhere in the world and say, I'm going to select this specific fund in Israel and it's going to generate a fantastic return for me. Statistically, it has shown to not be a very good, uh, a very prudent decision. And that's why I think for a vast majority of investors that don't have the time, the resources, the expertise and knowledge, to spend um, on investing in venture, I think it makes mostly much more sense to go with a fund of funds broker. You know, if, if typical investors, regular, regular funds, not fund of funds, are, like you mentioned, and that's a, such an interesting stat that 28% of them will fail. And then, you know, each one has this, they need to have this blind optimism or positivity bias that they're going to be able to reach that 3x. Um, and then eventually, obviously, reality sets in. What gives you that positivity bias? Because essentially you have to also, to a certain degree, have that vision of, of you know, blind optimism that I'm going to do, and you probably have to do more than 3x. Yeah. So again, I don't think our optimism lies in terms of looking at these managers and believing that they will be able to do more than 3x. And when we underwrite managers, we're looking for managers that are, are not going to turn 3x. We're looking for managers. We understand how venture kind of works, right? So if you look at venture capital, it's a game, it's like a long tail asset class. It's a game of outliers. So typically when, when you have a fund that's returning over 3X, it's usually not going to be 3X. It's actually going to be closer to the 5, 6, 7X. While on the other side of that, you're going to have a lot of funds that are returning 1.5, 1.6, 1.8 for you. Um, so when we on the right, we're looking for unique things in that manager that make him special and differentiated um, that we believe will allow him to have the option to succeed in that outlier fashion and return 5, 6, 7, 8X. And these sort of like, Things that we look for can come from different sources, right? So you can have an advantage because you are super specific on a certain sector. You can have that advantage because you have exceptional human skills, right? You can have that advantage because you have an exceptional network that allows you to get into deals that other people can't. And that's what we kind of try to understand with each of our managers. Like, yes, we understand that the probability of a given manager to return to five, six, seven, eight X is not high. But we want to find these managers where we have the conviction that if they succeed, they will be those five, six, seven, eight, eight X managers. And we also understand that there is a chance they fail. Um, in order to get to that, you know, five, six, seven, eight X fund, you need to do things that are sometimes almost unimaginable. And especially if you look at early stage venture, which is where we allocate all of our money essentially into funds. We only invest in early stage funds. You know, the exercise of sitting in a room with a few founders. And envisioning that these, this group of people had the chance of being a multi-billion dollar business in 10 years is an incredibly difficult task. So if you go back to that word that you said, optimism, I think venture investors need to be super optimistic um, as a core attribute because you, you almost need to be optimistic to the verge of insanity to say like, you know, these three guys 
or, or three girls are going to be super successful and they're going to build a multi-billion dollar business. And I think that's why, by the way, doing early stage investing is, is a very unique skill that not a lot of people are able to do it successfully as the data has shown. And that's, again, going back to that optimism, we need to find the optimism that they have about their ability to succeed. And one of the things that I really like about managers is managers that have this relentless internal know that they will succeed. And you can get that. You can feel that with certain people. It doesn't mean they will, but they have that little edge and that little feeling that they will do anything that is needed to be done in order to win. These people are pushing forward all the way, no matter what. And, and it, you know, it goes back to our conversation about like athletes. And, you know, remember that pyramid of like that little people at the top that are very special. It's because there is something about them that ticks that makes them different that will give him a relentless drive. And for me, again, I, I, I like these sports comparable like to win. I think some of the best managers that I know are people that are super focused, super like will not move their eyes off the ball. No matter what will happen, they will get what they want to get and they will get it done. And in a lot of ways, that's very comparable to professional athletes. Like, they have a mission, they have a task, they've made up their minds, and they will get it done. And I love seeing people like that. I love seeing entrepreneurs like that. And I love seeing GPs that are like that. Obviously, there's not many in both categories. But the ones that are, are the ones that usually make like major differences in the world and, and obviously within the financial right. returns. Yeah. Now, there's also like a few other elements, but I think this element is probably the most important because you have, like you said, you have every GP or even founder Will come with their unique specific skill set. Some will be more analytical, some will be more creative, some will be more on focused on the human connection and relationship. You know, each person has their unique skill set, and that's the job of those individual people to exactly find out what that is. But this relentless pursuit of winning is something that I think you have to have it innately with you. I'm sure you can work on it and build it up, but. When you see it, it's usually the people that have this relentless drive to win, you can already see it from a very younger age, from high school, from elementary school, from childhood, as a baby. You can see that they have this thing within them just to win, 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 win. I agree. And, you know, I gave you comparisons of guys like Danny or, or my friend alone, or we have this guy who's a myth on the Israel national team. His name is Shlomo, uh, Shlomo Lipitz. He used to be like my coach when I was 11 on the national team, like my first national team coach. And he, he just pitched for us, I think, in the Olympics. Shlomo is, is 44. And this guy, like, you know, see him going on the mound. And even when he's 44, there, there's something special. There, there's, there's a demeanor. There's a stance. There's the way he stands, the way he reacts, the way he speaks. Uh, there's just something different that, that, that puts him on another level than, than others. In addition to, obviously, the athletic skill and ability. It's not only, you know, a facade in the show. But it's like that internal confidence of success that together with, uh, with a unique athletic ability... You know, you combine these two and it brings like huge success together. And it's a combination of that, like mental state and obviously you're in sports and physical skills, but also so in, in business, those mental skills, right? And if you can combine those two things, you find, you know, very unique individuals. And, and obviously, again, going back to that pyramid, they're rare in any given place of life. Like these people are, are outliers of society. And, you know, I think if I was a general manager of a sports team, I would want to invest in, in outliers. If I'm in venture and I want to invest in entrepreneurs or I want to invest in, in GPs, like I am looking for outliers. I'm going to constant pursuits for these super unique individuals that, that are just, just different. The obvious question obviously is, is like, where do you find these outliers? But that's a whole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, and like I said, it's not easy. 
you know, it's processes and procedures that we built and we hope, um, or, or have a very strong conviction that they allow us to, to find these people. And it's not only find these people, it's find these people, understand that there's these people and build relationships and partnerships with these people. Right. You know, some people think that that, that kind of venture is, is, oh, you're great at sourcing. Well, guess what? A lot of people are good at sourcing, but if somebody's going to close a deal before you, then your sourcing is meaningless. Um, so, so it's really understanding that people, you know, we, we have our program. I don't know if I mentioned to you, we have this program called Sweet with NextGen. It's basically a program where we invite um, a bunch of applicants. We have about 70 applicants every year, and we basically select the top 10 kind of next generation Israeli VCs, and we teach them everything about venture that has nothing to do with investing. How do you fundraise? How do you build? How do you think about venture? A lot of things that we've been talking about. And we have this, and we actually had a session a couple of days ago, and, and we have this, this kind of pyramid that we say, you know, that the things we want to understand is we want excellence, we want consistency, and we want transparency. Because it's not only that you need to be great, you need to be great over a long period of time. And we need to understand why you're great, which is the transparency part. And I'll give a last, hopefully like baseball analogy. This one is great because one of my friends trained uh, with one of the trainers of like the Toronto uh, Blue Jays. And he asked him one day, like, what, what really makes a difference between these guys that are in AAA and, and the major league, right? Because sort of physical skills, they're, they're very similar, but there's like this mental capability that people that get to the major leagues have that, that players in AAA don't have. And the guy said that they do everything they go about is with a purpose. They don't just do things to do things. There's an intention behind everything. And again, all, all these things are, are, are things that for me ring true when I speak to some of the best venture managers that we have in Israel. Like with some of these people, you enter conversations and you understand that that conversation, a lot of times, there's an intent of why they're having this type of conversation with you at this point of time. And, and I think that's, that's another component. You know, we spoke about a ton of components of what makes people outliers and special, but that's another thing. It's kind of like that intention in every dialogue and everything that you do. There's a reason why you're doing it. Um, and there's an end goal to why you're doing it, which I think is, is, is again, going back to that discipline that you mentioned and that focus and that rigorous, those are all part of those skills that make kind of people special. Wow. That was so, that was so powerful. I love that because that's something that each one of us can apply into our own life. You know, having intention behind the things that we're doing or the interactions that we're having, having a goal in mind. I mean, obviously, you know, just like to clarify, it's not like, oh, I'm just taking for this person. No, but it's having some type of set intention beforehand of why you want to speak to such person and how you be able to benefit from a positive way. How you would be both. And, and that's something I also like. It's kind of like, you know, always be focused on, on maximizing pies. Splitting the pies is a horrible practice. It's almost funny because because Israel is very like Israel and the Middle East is very like a, a, a market without, right? It's, it's, it's a shoot. It's like you win, I lose. And I think what's really unique is in the venture space and in Israel in particular, that that's a bit disconnected from that Israeli culture. It's incredible to see how in Israeli venture capital, and I'm talking like the whole ecosystem, not VC, but like entrepreneurs, high tech in general. It's incredible how people have this kind of like modus operandi where we're here to help others and we're here to give. And it's always a thought of like maximizing the pie. And, and it's always incredible. It astonishes me that, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You're pretty much going to ping anybody in this ecosystem and say, hey, I, I need 30 minutes, an hour of your time. Like Nobody's going to say, no, I'm not going to help you. And I think that concept of like always maxing the pies, always speaking to your network, always expanding, always helping others, 
is something really special that again, I don't I don't know if it exists in other ecosystems, but I think it's super unique in, in the Israeli ecosystem and, and it's something that's very special. It's very cool to see here and, and it's it's something I'm very proud of as a you know, as a small member of the Israeli, you know, community. For sure. That's something very, very unique and special that you don't see anywhere else. What would you tell you know, a young Ami that, you know, is leaving university for the first time and has all the opportunities in front of him? Um, you know, he could become a baseball player, get into venture, become a barista at Starbucks. Like, what message would you tell him facing that world that has all these opportunities? Yeah. Do exactly the same thing you've done. I said it will be my last sports analogy, but <laughs> again, it's it's part of my thing. Is is you know like you need to have a short memory. Like what happened is, is not going to be a part of your future success. So even if I failed and I have failed, I have done mistakes. I have not, you know, nothing is perfect in life. You deal with adversity. You deal with with hard times. You deal with great times. It's fine. Like it's just a, a mental attitude that I'm grateful for having. Uh, again, just my personality, who I am. I. I know, or I've been taught or trained to put things behind me very quickly um, because tomorrow's a new day and, and tomorrow you, you need to execute. So you very rarely, and again, I'm trying to think if I've ever done it, but it's very rare for you to hear from me of like, you hear from me like, hey, we made a mistake. We could have done better. I could have done better. I could have improved. This was not as good as it could have been. But it's, it's never in a way of like dwelling on it and, and sitting on it and saying, oh, this is so horrible. Let's be down. No, always in a, in a positive way. So even if I'm making, I've made mistakes, I've taken different paths, there's almost like a sense of no regret. This is just like a, a journey in life. And, you know, life gets you through, you know, you go through life, you see ups, you see downs, you see challenges and it's fine. But I, I it's, it's a very hard question for me to answer because I, I really don't go back and feel like, Hey, you should have done something different. No, I think that's just like, I did what life gave me. And hopefully at any given point of time, I, I did my best to get the most out of it. The only thing I would, I would do is just say like, Hey, if you didn't do the most to get out of it and you did work as hard as you can, then, then you should work hard. That's the only thing I would tell, but I would tell that to, to myself at any given point of time. I think that's true throughout your life. So. And there's so many learning points in that, but I mean, I want to thank you. I mean, I can't believe the hour has passed so quickly, uh, because I know I could talk to you for way, way longer time. And we still have so many more topics to talk about. So we'll definitely have to do another round soon. But I want to thank you so much because I personally have learned a lot from this conversation and, um, and so, many, so many different aspects. And I always say the conversation is not the actual conversation happening. It's more the underlying conversation of the words not being said. We're able to pick up on certain things. And, you know, same thing like I'm assuming when you assess a GP or manager, if you can invest in their fund, you're not listening to the words. You're listening to the underlying thing. And I think over here... Um, is, you know, one thing that I've been able to pick up, and I think, you know, also a lot of people able to, will be able to too, is first of all, not sweating the small stuff. You know, don't sweat the small stuff. Let the bygones be bygones, right? Don't dwell on things. And the other thing is, and it's something that you've mentioned, is talked about also, is um, open yourself up to opportunities, but be ready to execute hardcore. You know, show why you are the right person for those opportunities. Show why you are the best option for anybody, you know, for them to give you this opportunity and be better than everyone else. And the third thing is help people. Don't be selfish. Don't think there's limited opportunities in the world. There's endless opportunities in the world. Everyone will get what they need and deserve and everything like that. Be there, help people, be out for them. So I want to thank you. And obviously, there are lessons that I'm going to have to apply more to my life. 
And there's no doubt that all the people listening to this are going to benefit tremendously from your wisdom um, and your story that you share. So I'm super, super grateful for that. And obviously, it goes without saying that I'm here for you, your family, Sweetwood, any way possible, and all that. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Fry. Obviously, super humbled for these words of, of compliment. Um, again, for me, just, just common sense and going about life the way I see it. And yeah, I, I couldn't summarize it better. I don't think Chad GPT <laughs> could summarize it better than you just did. So, <laughs> no, awesome. Like, again, super important lesson. I hope that anybody watching it can benefit a little bit and, and learn something special. So, if there's one person out there to learn something new and, and I help them do something better next day, then this was worth, you know, uh, a lot more than the hour that we, we spent here. So, again, thanks a lot. Been, been a true privilege and uh, I hope we'll get the catch up. You're welcome. Soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and you're able to take something out to apply to your personal or professional life today. Remember, the mission of the Founder Stories podcast is to provide to you with the most incredible conversations possible so you can get inspired. Now, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review because when you leave a review, you are doing your part in helping other people come across and find this podcast. Now, if you have any suggestions, ideas or feedback or anything else you'd like to tell me about this show, please email me at afrayim at 1000hires.com or find me on LinkedIn at Afrayim Yarmak. I very much look forward to hearing from you and I hope you have an awesome, awesome week.